Live from the 607, it's the Ocho Duro Parlay Hour, where we're talking everything movies, TV, comics, and entertainment. Join in the conversation on social media with the hashtag ODPH, because here we go. Welcome to a very special edition of the ODPH podcast, better known as the Ocho Duro Parlay Hour. I am your host, Ken M. You also know me as Nerd Initiative's Comics Editor-in-Chief. And we, when we do a special edition like this, we have to highlight a book that you absolutely need in your collection, ASAP. And this week on Comixology Originals, there is a brand new psychological thriller that you absolutely have to own with art by Connor Boyle and lettering by Tom Napolitano and a writer that has the reputation for killing comics. And quite frankly, if that is the case, let the bodies hit the floor when you have the track record that this writer has, whether it's the best Rogan Gambit story in Marvel and recent memory, and also a future story that is going to be talked about for many, many years to come, Cap Wolf and the Howling Commandos, to one of the most inspiring stories that a lot of fans need to start talking about, and that's Humanoids, Eight Limbs, which is absolutely amazing, uh, Wonder Woman and Harley Quinn for DC Comics, and the coolest book at the LCS every time it drops. I say this all the time on the show. It is more than a story. It is a vibe. It is just punk rock, absolute coolness, and that is Grim by Boom Studios. And if you haven't read the latest issue, it is heartbreaking. It will hit you in all the emotions, but it is absolutely fantastic. And this author also has a couple Stories on Comixology Originals that are absolutely amazing as well. We Only Kill Each Other and Mark Dawson's Beatrix Rose Vigilante. And now entering the fray is Black Sight number one. I am super excited to have her on the show. Please give a warm welcome to the one and only Stephanie Phillips. Stephanie, thank you for taking time out to talk to us today. Yeah, thank you for having me. You, you're going to be like my Paul Heyman from now on. Can you just like follow me around and, and hype me up a bit? Because that's a great intro. Absolutely. If you were down in New York Comic Con doing any panels, I will run on stage, hand me the mic, and I will do the intro. Absolutely. No oh, question. Perfect. We'll, we'll coordinate. Let's, let's talk. <laughs> absolutely. Let's make that happen. And like I was saying, Black Sight is absolutely incredible. It's a psychological thriller that, you know, from the minute I opened the page to I got to the end of the book, I was completely blown away. I was not sure exactly what to expect with the cover by Dave Johnson. I knew this looked just incredible. And before I dive into it, Marty from the Nerd Initiative bullpen could not make it in today. And I promised that I would let him open our the show off with the questions because he is just as much a fan of this book and grim as I am. So, Marty, I'm going to let him take it away. Hey, Stephanie and Ken. Really bummed I couldn't make this interview because I absolutely love everything that Stephanie's been involved in from all the publishers, especially Comixology. I really enjoyed her writing style, where she tackles concepts and ideas that most haven't explored. Her latest comic book, Black Sight 1, is incredible. It had me hooked right from the beginning. I couldn't believe it's based on a true story. So my question is, what inspired you to write about these events? Thanks, Ken, for letting me sneak a question in, and hope you guys have a great chat. Awesome. Yeah, uh, so what inspired something as horrific as uh, what we're doing in Black Sight? Um, it was actually two things. One um, was really just like the real life events surrounding Sidney Gottlieb, who uh, doesn't really directly appear in the story, but really influences the story that we're telling. Um, Sidney Gottlieb uh, was kind of nicknamed the Poisoner in Chief 
he was a scientist that worked for the CIA, a chemist, uh, who was put in charge of chemical, basically chemical warfare, like coming up with poisons that he could give to the CIA to poison enemies, coming up with new techniques to torture people, um, and honestly continuing a lot of the research done by uh, Nazi scientists during the Holocaust, which is pretty horrific when, when you think about that, which um, the U.S., sentiment was if we continue this research and we take the science that was done during the Holocaust and continue it, it's better we do it than somebody like the Russians do it, but I'm not sure it's good for anybody to do it, but you know, that was, that was the thought process. Um, and a lot of people's lives were, were ruined by what Gottlieb and his team were doing, um, kind of testing on people without their knowledge, dropping drugs into people's drinks, um, MK Ultra is a very famous example of, of something that Gottlieb was, was behind. A lot of LSD going on in the CIA at the time. Um, something that didn't make it into our book, but one day I swear I need to do a book on this. The CIA actually hired a magician, uh, which is like really? one of my favorite stories ever. Uh, yeah, just like to teach agents sleight of hand. Uh, they hired, you know, somebody who'd do card tricks or things like that. Um, so you could like distract somebody while putting poisons in their drink or something. Um, wow. So yes, uh, somewhere down the road, my CIA magician book will be wonderful, but um, <laughs> uh, maybe a little lighthearted for, for the story we're telling here. Um, so that was kind of the backdrop of the story we wanted to tell, but we really wanted the character of the story to represent something slightly different. I would say she's very influenced by books like The Yellow Wallpaper, Wallpaper um, which is about the rest cure, which um, was a prescription given to women because psychologists, psychiatrists didn't really know how to treat women. Um, they kind of, it's a lot of stuff comes out of this era of like the wandering uterus causes hysteria and it's moving all over your body. And it's like absolutely insane things that were prescribed or said about women and their bodies and the way our minds work. Um, and so having the main character be a woman, that's kind of like this stand in for not just literature that was produced about this, which from page one, you will see there are a lot of uh, homages to yellow yeah. wallpaper um, is very intentional uh, on our part as a team, um, but also having a character inserted into this that isn't. Uh, it maybe isn't the stereotypical person from a CIA tale. It's it's a woman who's traveling and um, is maybe not the most honest narrator in the world. Somebody that also kind of fits into this idea of who's telling the truth, what is your truth, um, and kind of combining those two concepts together. Yeah, no, I it was something that when you read this book too, you can definitely tell it's like what is really perception versus reality and trying to walk through Alex's shoes and figuring out like really what is going on and especially the use of colors really sets the tempo about what readers might want to think, okay, this is the real version of the story or is this all in her head? And I mean, when you're coming up with the concept for this, that is obviously such a big factor going in. And is that going to be something moving forward too with the coloring scheme? Yeah, um, I think yellow does come up quite a bit. I think Connor has been really smart about it as well, even in places where I haven't directly been like, we need yellow. <laughs> um, Connor has done some cool things with the palette that kind of continue some of those themes that we set up in the first issue. Um, 
and and just kind of wanting to do something where the narration and what I'm doing is completely different at times from what Connor's doing. Um, you see her saying one thing in the narration, but on the page, she's literally doing another thing. And um, I think that's something really cool in comics that's pretty unique to the format. And when we get a chance to do a story like that, it fits so well as a comic. It's like, this is why this story is a comic. Um, and this is how Connor and I are kind of teaming up together to to pull that off. Like, here's what I'm doing and here's what Connor's doing. And here's when they come together like that. Um, and I won't spoil it, but there's a page in the first issue where that happens pretty quickly, like maybe page three or four, um, where she says one thing in the narration, but we are watching her do another thing. And Connor did such a cool job. Like it's one of my favorite pages of the book still. Um, but just the way he, he kind of read the narration and developed the page with that all in mind. I think I know which one you're talking about. I won't. I won't spoil it. It's. <laughs> I, I would say nightclub. Yes. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. No. No more. No more spoilers about that. Uh, but no. I, and I think how you and Connor are working together with the imagery too. Like I say, this book is very haunting, and it's very much in the time period of the '60s too. And you really get taken back by just what is going on and just how the story is evolving with everything that once you get to the final page, it's like you're absolutely blown away by what's happening. And then followed up in issue one, and I believe in issue two, there's also a backstory Glickman by Delania Abril and Marco Fedora. Do you mind talking a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, so Delena was uh, an assistant of mine for a little while. Um, oh, okay. Kind of worked with her to, um, she worked on and you know, given what's going on Aftershock, I don't know that we'll see it, but she actually co-wrote the second volume of Nuclear Family with myself and Tony Shastine. Oh, nice. Um, yeah, she's been working with me for a while. She's great. Um, I would say like a really wonderful upcoming voice. Uh, and I wanted to kind of personally help her through that door um, and, and kind of find opportunities for her. And when we started working on Black Site, she was my research assistant. So we did a lot of the research on Gottlieb and the story and the backdrop together. And it was one of those things where I was thinking about it. And I was like, you know so much about this. And there's so much that like the story that we are telling about Alex doesn't let us include about Gottlieb and the true story of this and so in place of me writing some kind of author's note about like here's what Gottlieb was doing I was like you know what Delena you know you know this story like take the ball run with it uh you know kind of kind of pitch me what you want to do for the backup story she had this great idea which it's a true story um uh, about this this figure that you're kind of following Glickman and um I, I love what she did with it. And Marco's artwork was awesome too. I think Marco was like one of the people we approached is like, you'd be perfect for this. We want to do a black and white short. What do you think? Um, and so I'm really glad the timeline worked out because it, it turned out wonderful, I think. And the, the next oh, installment yeah. of it is, is awesome too. That'll be out in the next issue. I can't wait to check it out. No, I thought it was, it was a perfect companion piece to the story going on because you still have that intrigue. You still have the mystery. It definitely has a different feel and vibe to it. So it's not feeling like it's just an additional piece, but it's like two stories that are going to come together and just how it all is going to play out. That's something is, for me as a reader, I'm excited to check out because of just how much the tempo was built up here. And now going into, this is now an, another book for Comicsology Originals. You've now written three different time periods with We Only Kill Each Other, Beatrix Rose, and now Black Sight. What is it about, you know, the challenges and, and a, the draw to write these different time periods that, you know, for you as a writer, like, do you really say, like, I really love doing, or like, this is going to be a challenge, and this is what I'm kind of rising to the occasion for? 
Uh, I like research. I, I think coming from an academic background, that's just like such a normal thing to me to any writing process is a research component. So I feel very comfortable when I can go uh, get books and like read articles. Um, but uh, I think a, a big thing for me as a writer too, is I try to move away from that at times with something like Grimm or Cosmic Ghost Writer, where I get a chance to just be very like, oh man, now I have to like make this up in my brain. There's not a book that tells yeah. me what like car models were used at this time. Like <laughs> this is this is on me. Um, so I like being able to do both. Uh, but I, I will say having a conversation one time and I, I almost wish he didn't tell me this with uh, Brian Stelfreeze told me that I seem to have an obsession with uh, the broken ideal of America. So a lot of my stories revolve around, uh, you know, Gottlieb I think is, I think a lot of people are very, uh, common knowledge with the idea of MK Ultra, like we kind of know that name, but there's a lot more to what Gottlieb was doing and what the US was doing as a whole in taking documents and scientists and researchers who have committed literal war crimes against innocent humans, mm -hmm. but saying like their research is going to help us and we'd rather take the Nazis and have them come here and work for us than let the Russians get to that kind of technology first. Um, just doing research without any kind of limitation on it. Um, saying like, we're going to experiment on this person wherever we want, where however we want. And the kind of research that came out of that, which is really inhumane. And Gotlia picked up that Nazi ball and was like, sure, I'll do this for the US. Um, I will run with this. I will run this program uh, that has very limited to no governmental oversight. We will have black sites in different places around the world uh, and basically do what we want when we want, because at the end of the day, he's justifying it as for the betterment of the country. Um, and I think those kinds of things, I think Stelfreeze was maybe, maybe right about it, which is, um, <laughs> that is, that is something I find interesting, like, you know, the man behind the curtain, um, mm. though now I'm maybe a little too aware of my interest in it. And, uh, I'm kind of like, Brian, just keep your, keep your ideas to yourself. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I was like, right, but, <laughs> right. But, you know, but in, in that kind of situation, it, it's delving into, you know, the, the true story. You know, we always kind of grow up and we always have this vision of the past and especially with, you know, period pieces such as this that we all think, you know, one way. But when you really dive into the nitty gritty, if you will, and you really start digging into the historical facts, like not everything is all sunshine and rainbows. It's very inhumane. It's it's you know almost to the point of being disgusting at times. And you sit there and just think like, you know, how does this happen? And when it's brought to light in this kind of manner. I think for a lot of younger readers, especially like you're getting a very unique view of history, but it's a very honest one too. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, I think taking digestible pieces and creating a story around a specific character you can follow. And something I really love that Delena did was focusing on Glickman. So instead of writing a short story about all of Gottlieb's career, she actually picked someone who was impacted by Gottlieb and tells his story. Um, and I love that kind of thing. I think um, Eric Larson, not Savage Dragon, but the author Eric Larson, <laughs> who was a journalist turned uh, turned nonfiction writer, uh, just nails it. Uh, he, every single book he writes, it's nonfiction. It reads like fiction, but it invests you in a person that you want to think of as like a character. Uh, I think one of the best examples is a book he wrote about uh, the German or the U.S. ambassador to Germany during Hitler's rise to power, okay. and it is 
it's so personal. Like he has actual excerpts from the ambassador's daughter's diary. And there's like this love story. That's all true. This all happened, but you become so invested in this family with, you know, Hitler's rise as the backdrop that it's, it's almost like you tricked me into learning. (laughs) It's so clever though. It's, it's so smart because nobody wants to sit and read a textbook of the complete history of world war two. We want these personal stories that make us feel that kind of empathy for the characters and people that lived through these moments. And, um, you know, I think Delena did it expertly. I think um, Eric Larson does it every single time. He's somebody that I read constantly. I listen to him talk all the time because I'm just like, this is such an interesting angle. And I I do uh, fiction and he does nonfiction, but I still, I really think that's an important angle to take when doing history. Yeah, because I was going to say, it's something when you're diving into these periods, like, do you try staying as close to the factual history or do you just kind of say, like, I'm going to take the loose idea and run with it? And I think in this kind of situation, it's more pro to be as factual as possible. Yes. Well, I think I try to make the backdrop as factual as possible. And then within that, some alternate history. We Only Kill Each Other is definitely alternate history. The way that mm-hmm. book ends is not the way yeah. the, the re- villain of that story ends, unfortunately. Um, I mean, he didn't have, he, he still had a downfall, but not quite the way that I wrote it. Um, so yes, there's, there's definitely some playing with that. And I think I learned from Butcher of Paris. Butcher of Paris, I tried to be as strict as I could with making this book nonfiction. Um, But then when you get into like, okay, you've got five issues and so many pages and limitations with with what we can fit in there. uh, I think I learned a valuable lesson of I would rather create uh, people and insert them into these periods where you get to see the backdrop but we're really following the character and developing a character who I don't have to be like, okay, well, what did they say? And when did they say it? And where's the newspaper article? And I have to translate their voice. Right. And um, it's, it's not impossible, but I think it then makes me a little nervous about misrepresenting a real person in some way. So I, I think now my, my tendency would be to create a person and then put them in a backdrop that is realistic. No, and I think that's a great take to do because, like I say, to connect with the audience now, it's like when you can make it a relatable character like that you can empathize with and see their emotions and kind of walk in their shoes. I think that adds so much to a story that it's not just, you know, coming off as, as a historical piece, but one that is just a, it's a great story. And you want to see how this character evolves, good, bad, and different. You want to see where the direction leads. Yeah. So with Black Sight now... You've now written, like I said, in a couple different decades with Beatrix Rose and We Only Kill Each Other. Which one of those three is your favorite and why? Ooh, man, it's hard to pick. <laughs> um, well, We Only Kill Each Other and Black Sight are mine. Um, Mark Dawson's story was, you know, obviously created by Mark Dawson. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a great story. I've read most of his, his novels as well. I love the character Beatrix, um, but she's not mine. And I think at the end of the day, having two books where Alex and, you know, my, my Jewish gangsters, I think there's, uh, I I think that's, you know, putting me into the, these characters a lot more. So um, there's definitely something more personal about owning the projects and with my co-creators and and saying like, these are ours um, versus coming to kind of like a ready-made story. But um, yeah, uh, it's hard to pick because they all have fun elements, and that's a challenge as well. Picking up somebody else's toy, whether you do it with DC, Marvel, Mark Dawson's character Beatrix, um, that's still like a really fun writing experiment too. 
Oh, absolutely. Like I say, it's just one thing, especially when you get to dive into so many different characters and, you know, really kind of have your own take on it. And then even comparing to like your own, I mean, creator own just has to be that much better. I just feel. Um, yes and no. I mean, there are still like good and bad to everything. Mm -hmm. Um, I do think that like currently where I'm at, I, what I want to write and the things that I wanted, the stories that I'm working on that are like really, um, passionate for me are definitely creator owned. And I think I've learned a lot in that realm. Like I've had a lot of opportunities and I kind of feel like I'm at a point in my career where like I've hit, I've hit a new space where I'm like, okay, now I, I have a better sense of what my voice is and the stories that I want to tell and the things that matter to me in these books. And I'm, I'm like really excited for the next wave of creator owned stuff that's about to come out because I think it's, um, I think it is a uh, maturation for me as a writer, okay. like what's about to happen. Um, and uh, taking that though, and then I'm putting it into some of the stuff I'm doing for Marvel right now is also really beneficial because it's, they might not be my characters, but I'm taking those lessons of things that I've done in creator owned. And I'm saying, okay, now I can take this character. Um, and also I can say no to characters that I don't think my voice fits for. And I feel a lot more confident with that. So, um, so yeah, also I think some of the stuff coming up from Marvel, I am, I'm like, okay, I think this might be some of my best work and I'm really excited for that. So. Yeah, your Marvel work has been phenomenal. I'm counting down the days to get Cap Wolf and the Howling Commandos. I am so psyched up. I'm probably going to be harassing Marvel's PR office to send that press copy like as soon as we're done recording. Like that is how excited with Carlos Manuel, Carlos Manuel's art. Oh my, yeah, I, it's I, incredible. Oh my god, it's so good. I I've got a great relationship with Carlos, and um, I'm like, uh, Carlos, what else do you want to work on? Let's go. <laughs> like I want to do more. Um, but I can tell that that one. That one has been so much fun. And I can also tell like other people are liking it. I've, I've gotten some messages from CB and other editors at Marvel that are like, we really like this. And it's like, that's cool. I'm, I'm glad because uh, we had a lot of fun, uh, fun doing that one. Oh, I can imagine just even seeing the promo art for it is like, I'm like, this is going to be something super special. You know, like I say, much like Black Sight too. Like there's just, it's very cool to see just the the different stories, the different you know energies with it, and just like you know when we're picking up comics these days too, it's always great to just have some you know a fresh take on a character, and especially in that time period too. It's like when you start going in there and really diving into you know what really works in that era, what really doesn't, and just really bring it to the fans nowadays, and to see that kind of reaction, I mean that's just got to be overwhelming. It's it's very cool. And it's it's also fun. You know, I, I think when I was coming up with this and talking to Amazon about it, um, my, my manager was like, you do a lot of historical, um, any chance you could give us a story that's like maybe set in modern day, you know, because I mean, his job is to take things and go sell it. Uh, and movie studios that's cheaper or whatever mm -hmm. and i was like oh more modern okay um i have this story set in the 60s and he was just <laughs> like, what <laughs> um he's like that's not what i meant but uh i was like oh but that's more modern to me so uh we're gonna run with that um but i'm i'm really glad you know that's something coming into the industry i was told by a lot of publishers or editors when they kind of saw the kind of work I was doing, like, you're gonna have a really hard time doing this kind of work because, you know, publishers don't wanna publish this because it's too hard to sell to movie studios. And, um, you know, I think I've gotten really fortunate that I haven't had, I really haven't had people say no to me doing that. I've had people asking for it. I've had, um, you know, other artists coming to me saying like, we wanna draw something like this can we partner up? And um, I, I'm really excited that people have kind of allowed me to do this thing that people said I couldn't do. So, 
Well, you know, I mean, but your work speaks for itself. I mean, in all honesty, you know, when I like, I, I'll admit, like taking the podcaster comic press person away from this as a fan, I see your name on a book. I go pick it up because I know I'm always going to get a, a great story. So and just with the word of mouth talking with other fans at the comic shops on Wednesday, let alone on social media, like everybody knows, like you just come with such a unique style and a unique voice that it stands out from everybody else on the shelves that week. So, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not super surprised by that because just the, the body of work speaks for itself. Oh, well, thank you. Oh, <laughs> no. Earning your Paul Heyman credit. <laughs> I, I, serious. I, I might have to ask you after the show if you're watching, if you're watching yeah. pro wrestling. So then we might have to end with that question. Oh. Yes, we, we can go there. <laughs> All right. Padge is just giving me the big thumbs up over here. He's not on camera, but yes. Uh, <laughs> but back to the book, and especially with doing business with, you know, Comixology was always digital first, and the deal usually comes later with Dark Horse uh, Comics printing the stories, much like with Beatrix Rose and We Only Kill Each Other. Is there a different approach that you do when you get a story for this, or is it just pretty much business as usual, story as a story? Um, you mean like in terms of working for Amazon versus Boom yeah. or something like that? Uh, yeah, uh, Amazon has a very different model where it's very much on me. So they'll, they kind of just are like, here's some money, go make a comic and come back to us when you have a comic. Um, so it is it is very heavily on me. Like there is uh, there is some input from them, you know, when they see things, they look through everything and um They've kind of got their own team that goes through stuff and yes, they give input, but um, initially it's, it's a lot on me. Our editor, Will Dennis, I would say maybe more on him because uh, I don't think that any of this would get done without Will. No, I know none of this would get done without Will. Um, I I need Will very, very much. Um, So I'm very, very grateful to have him in my life um, kind of helping put all this together and also just reading through. Um, I'm a very verbal worker. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of my editors that I have like Eric Harbour and at Boom knows this and Will knows this when I'm like writing I want to I want to be able to call up and be like I had this idea and a part of my brain says it's really stupid the other part is like it's a risk worth taking and getting their input is nice and I think coming up as a writer the real difficult thing is you want to impress the editor this is the person that Mm -hmm. gave you the job and it's a really tough thing to call somebody up and be willing to spit out an idea that might not be a good idea but you need that feedback and uh yeah i'm i'm i think that's another thing that in my career i'm at a point where i've developed those relationships and that's so important to me to be able to go to somebody like eric or will and say like this might be stupid but i i'm fully confident and willing to give you the stupid ideas so that we can work together to make it better which is um early on in my career not a confidence that i had with an ed- with editors and it's not on the editors mm-hmm. but more on like you know you this person gave me a job like oh no i can't go to them and tell them this thing it's stupid they're gonna fire me so um it's it's uh nice to kind of break through that barrier that i had for myself no, and especially trying to really, you know, go out and make those connections and really get that honest feedback and really build something into, you know, truly a, a monster book and a monster story that fans are going to talk about. That's such a big part of making comics is you just want to, or making great stories is just to get that honest feedback and really run with it and kind of see like, okay, if you, you know, the more eyes on the prize, so to speak, and just kind of see yeah. where everything can go. 
Yeah. And I thought it was cheating for a while too, to like, you know, go to friends of mine that are artists or writers and be like, Hey, can you look over this? What do you think of it? I'd be like, Oh man, I'm cheating. <laughs> like, and I think I said that one day to someone, they were like cheating. What are you taught? This is not cheating. This is like a smart way to use your network of, of people, uh, like to get that kind of feedback as a creator and be receptive to it. Um, I love, especially early stages of outlining something. I love to ask artists in my life to take a look and be like, you know, I want to know how you're thinking about this because their brain is wired to think about it in terms of page layouts and how they're going to tell the story and what things look like. And um, that is, that's something I pretty much always do now is, you know, I've got my, my little artist circle that I'm really grateful for that will kind of give me that feedback and do it for each other. No, and, and, and the proof is in the books every time out. Like we we see this, and I know what's going to be coming, you know, down the road in the future. That's going to be stuff to watch too. And it's just you know when you have the great story and can pair up with you know partners on these books and really just make something truly magical. Like that's the best thing about this. Yeah, no, it is. It's it's what makes comics great is being able to have that kind of uh immediate creative team like connor will and tom and then also having that network of people that i think are just like kind of always my team um and and that's great and adding those people like i think connor's somebody um we've developed a good relationship so i I think this is somebody that like i would want to continue working with and also just have on my team so oh absolutely so let me ask you a fun question though because knowing how you intermix music with grim and you have such yeah. a great soundtrack, too, from Blue Oyster Cult to Bruce Springsteen and some of a lot of the music mixed in there. In yeah. the opening pages of the book, Alex is in the nightclub. What is the band playing? Oh, man, we went over this so much with, like, what came out that year um, and what, like, time. It got ridiculous to the point of, like, is it snowing in Amsterdam? Because this song wouldn't have been out at that time. <laughs> um, I think in terms of what was playing in the nightclub, we decided we didn't want to have any lyrics or anything over the page, though they are listening to something in the apartment when um, the other character puts on a record. And now I'm blanking on what song we actually went with, because when I tell you how many options there were for this song, it was uh, it was pretty ridiculous. But we did make it a point to have them have that conversation. And I had to like consult lots because... There were things that came out at that time period, but then you start getting down to the the actual specifics of like, this came out, I don't know, three months after we've hypothetically set the book, so it doesn't work. Um, so that was, that a lot, a lot of time was spent on that. <laughs> yeah, because yeah. I was sitting there going like, I, I and like I say, you have great songs that you always mix into the stories with Grimm, and I'm sitting there going like, okay, what song is playing here? Because I'm, I'm trying to like, you know, rack my brain going like, and I could not figure it out for the life of me. <laughs> uh, I would say Black Side is maybe a little less musical than Grimm. I mean, we yeah. do have the one music track that plays while they're in the apartment. But um, and before Grimm, I was actually not a big fan of like music appearing in comics. Really? Because, uh, yeah, I, I always felt like uh, the lettering was kind of difficult for me. Mm. It was something that I, I felt was a little unnecessary. And then you have somebody like Tom who comes along who letters both Black Sight and Grimm. Yeah. And when I tell you that Tom deserves every lettering award we can give a person, like I will personally go fight for this. <laughs> like, um, I love Tom. And anytime that I can work with Tom, like, oh God, I will. Um and I, I just think he found the perfect way to do it 
for both Grimm and Black Sight and anything else we work on together, it's like I feel more confident being able to put those kinds of things into the script, knowing that Tom is going to take that and be really creative with with how it interplays with the imagery. Oh, absolutely. The the opening pages of Grimm where he puts the Don't Fear the Reaper lyrics in the snow is one of the coolest visuals I think I've ever seen in a comic. And I understand like it won the Cheersy uh, for best letter last year and rightfully so, because it was just, it, it was amazing to see how it gets mixed in and his work. I mean, he's always great. And to see like what he's doing here too is pretty phenomenal stuff as well. But like I say, I just was sitting there reading the book. I'm like, I know. And like, do you have like a Spotify public playlist for everybody? Um, I think boom tried to do one at some point. I, I know I'm the one that dropped the ball on that because I, <laughs> I didn't finish uh, like putting all the songs in, but um, no, that's a good reminder to do that. I, I will, I will finish that. <laughs> that would be good. Oh, absolutely. Like I say, you have, you have great taste in music that we've seen in the books. And like I say, I, when I was sitting there reading the, like, I, I could not get over it. Like that was the one thing that was, I was hung up on. I'm like, what is playing in the club right now? <laughs> I think in my mind they were playing an original, but, uh, like just that, that guitar guy that's in there, which I love. Yeah. Um, one of the things that Connor sketched out the guitar guy like really early on I was just like that's just a really cool image and I'm sorry he he doesn't appear like all the time because he's cool so yeah no amazing and before we let you go you, you brought up about pro wrestling and Paul Heyman are, are you big into WWE I am a little little obsessed let's uh, go <laughs> <laughs> yes uh i'm a very big kevin owens fan uh that is that's my guy <laughs> Sami Zayn, best best intro music but kevin owens i just oh my god i love him <laughs> i've gotten a chance to meet him when he was wrestling on the indies here yeah he's a phenomenal person and yeah right now i mean what is your take on the bloodline storyline I lost interest during the jimmy j betrayal like during that that last pay-per-view that they did um and i think i've kind of turned more to like i'm more interested in judgment day and i watch more okay raw. um like i'm, I'm kind of interested in this like where's jay gonna fit into the raw roster and um i so right now i'm i'm really following that and then like i like mjf and adam cole on aew which i do watch less of but those two together are just it's just like the worst wrestling take. I'm like, oh, they're adorable. <laughs> no, it's in all honesty, it's AEW's best storyline they've ever had. Yeah. So it's it's compelling. Like I find myself, I didn't know how I was gonna like it when I first saw it, and I'm like, now that is like the sole reason I'm watching Dynamite because it's just that entertaining. Especially MJF being the 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 cool heel, and uh, even when he did the uh, remake of the Bret Hart commercial this past week, I don't know if you yes. saw that. Yeah, that <laughs> was is. hysterical. Yes. No, he's great. And uh, I mean, I joke about it every time we see Paul Heyman, though. I'm like, I want that in my life. Like, I am so bad at representing myself. I want to just be the person that's not on the mic. I want somebody else to come in and like shit talk for me. <laughs> if you want that pre-recorded, I promise you, I will make one for you if you want. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, because honestly, the, the books speak for themselves. And this is 100% genuine fan talk here. Every time I've picked up an issue since I've been fortunate enough, you know, even before I was doing press, always amazed at the writing. And even now with the recent stuff, like, honestly, I could gush about Grimm probably for about three hours and Pad would probably kill me for doing it because he, he's, he's very tolerable on New Comic Book Day with me because it's that impressive. And it's just such a, you know, when you take a look at all the books you have out right now, it's amazing work and more people should be getting into it. Like I say, from Eight Limbs, which was phenomenal. 
Uh, being an MMA fan, like I was completely all about that story. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, is Elvis your walkout song I heard? Yes. Um, Devil in Disguise was my walkout music when I was fighting. Okay. All right. And I, I, think, that I think because it would make me laugh, uh, I in most of my fights, I'm not sure how this would happen, but in most of my fights, I was usually the second person to walk out. And, okay. um, you know, the, whoever I was fighting would come out to something that's like, really like hard like oh i'm tough and then you yeah. hear like some little guitar riff like elvis and <laughs> and i think most video of me walking out to the ring is just me laughing um because it that would just make me laugh i thought it was funny oh yeah um, like no like it, like i remember hearing it and i was like wait wait what because i always <laughs> like much much like you were saying like usually when you think like ufc mma is usually like you know some kind of new metal or you know something like that that's like real aggressive and then it was like, wait, Elvis, like, how are you coming out to Elvis? Like, you know, like I say, it's, I mean, every fighter's got whatever gets them motivated to fight. I mean, that's a whole different ballgame. But, you know, like I say, it threw me for a loop when I first heard it. But that's amazing, though. Thank you. Yes, I'm very, very triggered by Devil in Disguise. If I hear it now, it's like, oh, I got to punch somebody. But <laughs> it's, uh, I, I loved that song. And I was... Um, yeah, I think, you know, before the fights, they would always ask you, like, what do you want us to play? And they'd be like, do we have this right? <laughs> it's like, yeah, yeah, that's the one. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. But yeah, like I say, with the books that are out right now alone, like I say, Eight Limbs is a fantastic read. Grim is always a must pick up at the comic shops, no matter what. Rogan Gambit was amazing. Man, I cannot reiterate how psyched up I am for Cap Wolf and the Howling Commandos as much as I am with Black Sight. Because trust me, ODPH Society... When you pick this book up, and you had better go pick it up as soon as you hear this podcast, because the link is in the liner notes of this, you definitely will be amazed by the writing, amazed by the visual presentation, and you're going to be hooked. And if you're talking about making this into a TV show, I could definitely see this on streaming already with one issue. And I think it's going to be a monster hit. Thank you. Um, you can also come with me to Amazon to sell that. <laughs> send me links. I will definitely do it. It's great. We're we're coming up with things. <laughs> yeah, whatever you need, I can definitely hook that up because I have Love no it. problem hyping up because the story is good. It speaks for itself. And trust me, when anybody picks this up, they're going to be absolutely blown away by this. Stephanie, thank you so much for taking the time out to talk with us. We definitely got to do it again soon sometime. Well, thanks. That would be great. All right. So, like we said, the links for Black Site number one is in the liner notes of this podcast. For anything and everything that is the ODPH, you can find it at odphpodcast.com. That's it for the special edition of the show. My name is Ken M. Thank you for listening. And as always, we'll see you next time. Such wasted time Swiping left and swiping right On people you could know Cause anyone who's worth a damn Be worth way more than a picture could ever show You can find the right light Find the right angle And never find your soul And it can feel like a losing battle And this plot is full of holes This modern way of finding love Just makes me feel so alone And I can't be the only one Sick of staring at my phone So look up Talk to me A better way to 
fables Everyone has just one true love All I know is you're across this table And you're all I'm thinking of So look up Talk to me Swiping left and swiping right on people you could know